Mariupol, Bucha, Kharkiv, cities and towns most of us had never heard of. Now we not only know their names, but their plight weighs heavy on us, on our hearts and on our minds. In towns and cities across Ukraine, right now, people are trapped and in desperate need of rescue. From Russian bombardment, and as we saw in our news feeds this week, from even worse depredations. Just this week, I heard the report of one family rescued from Bucha, and it brought tears to my eyes. Can you imagine the flood of of relief and gratitude, the, the, the tears of joy, indeed, it would bring to our eyes if a rescue was accomplished not just for one family from Bucha, but for the thousands upon thousands of people that are trapped right now. We would be filled with joy if we went home from church today and our news feeds showed a very different picture than what we've been seeing. But now consider the emotion that would follow after such a rescue was finished and accomplished. See, joy wouldn't be the last thing we felt at that moment, right? Anger that the rescue was needed in the first place. A desire for vengeance, justice on those who caused the need for the rescue. We're used to people being rescued all the time. We, we, we see it, you know, people are rescued from an advancing wildfire. People are rescued from a, a rising river or flood. It's another thing altogether to be rescued from the unjust invasion of a foreign army. Acts of God, like wildfires and floods, Rescue in those situations provoke feelings of gratitude. But they do not provoke desires for justice. No, acts of God don't provoke desires for justice. Human wickedness provokes a desire for justice. Why is that? Well, because we need to not only be rescued from wickedness. No, justice comes along and vindicates, right? Justice takes a situation in, in which the, the, the victim is in danger and the perpetrator has all the power and justice reverses it. It sets things right. It empowers the victim. It punishes the perpetrator. This is a really heavy start to a heavy chapter. The message of Christianity is that all of us are in need of rescue. We all need rescue. 
What do we need rescue from? Well, at the very least, we need rescue because we are kind of all trapped in the, in the brokenness of our own lives. We've tried hard to fix them, but we fail again and again. We, we know, if we're honest, we need help. We, we need to be rescued. But, but here's the thing. What good is a rescue if the evil that occasioned its need remains unchallenged? What good is a rescue if the problem of wickedness and evil continues to hold the day, continues to to hold the field, as it were? That's the question that the book of Esther poses for us this morning. Can God do more than rescue his people from their mortal enemies? Could God actually like set things right? Can God do more than simply rescue you? Turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. We are closing in on the end of our series in Esther. Esther chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles we've, we've provided, that's found on page 437. 437, Esther chapter 8. Just to set the scene, I'm going to read the first two verses. Esther chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Now, I've been away for a couple of weeks, and maybe you weren't here for the whole series. So let me just kind of catch you up to where we are right here at the beginning of chapter 8. Haman, who was the prime minister of the king, he was also the enemy of the Jews. And he has been executed as a traitor because of his actions against Queen Esther. That happened at the end of chapter 7. The gallows that he built for Mordecai were ironically used for him instead. And in a note of further ironic reversal, we see here Mordecai is actually promoted to Haman's office of prime minister. He receives the signet ring and he's given charge of Esther's of Haman's estate, which now belongs to Esther. And don't forget, Haman was richer than the king. It, it seems like at the end of verse two, we've got a fairy tale ending, like the book should end now, right? Like what, what, what could be a better ending for Esther and Mordecai? The book doesn't end, though, because the problem remains. The, the, the threat to the people of God is still there. An evil decree seems to still hold the field. In chapter 3, Haman had manipulated the king into issuing an edict for the lawful destruction of all of the Jews throughout the empire. Genocide. And in chapter 1, just so we didn't miss the significance of that decree, we were told that a royal decree properly recorded cannot be revoked. God's people need to be rescued. But here's the thing. 
God has something even better than a rescue in mind. Here, I think, is the point of chapter 8. We'll put it on the screen. God doesn't just revoke our sentence of death. He reverses it. He turns it upside down. And we're going to unpack that idea by first considering a plea for rescue and then second, a decree of reversal. That's the outline, two points, real simple. A plea for rescue, a decree for reversal. What would it mean for God to not only rescue you, but to actually reverse your condition? Well, first, let's look at this plea for rescue. We'll, we'll just pick it up there in verse 3. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king, and I have found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents, the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? I think it'd be easy to just skip over kind of lightly Esther's request. After all, I mean, she successfully got Haman executed. She's got Haman's estate. Mordecai's got the, the signet ring. We would think that this is, this is now small, right? But actually, once again, Esther is taking a huge risk. Not only does she potentially try the king's patience, like, come on, I've already done a bunch for you. What more do you want? Right? No, but she, she's actually showing sorrow in the king's presence. And we know from the book of Nehemiah that you were not allowed to show sorrow in the presence of a Persian monarch. Sorrow was kind of banished from the throne room. But, but here she is. She is weeping and begging. She, she takes her life in her hand. She, she falls at the king's feet and begs him to revoke his previous edict. There's no fear in Esther at this point. You know, we, we've seen that earlier. Where Mordecai had to Urge her forward. Oh, Esther, Esther has no fear. But while she may have lost her fear, she has not lost her wits. Right? Notice she avoids implicating the king directly. She's smart. Right? She, she appeals to him to revoke the evil of Haman, the Agagite. And his plot there in verse 3. And down in verse 5, she, she asked the king to revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote. It's really interesting what she's doing here. Her goal is not to convince the king that he issued a bad decree. Her goal is to convince the king to rescue the Jews. That's a picture of humility. At this very moment, I want you to see her humility. And it stands in stark contrast 
to Haman and his pride. Chapter 8, as we're going to see as we walk through it, is written in such a way that it is a direct parallel to chapter 3, where, where Haman shows up on the scene, and Haman gets to write the edict. Both chapters, you can, you can just flip back to chapter 3. I'm not going to like point everything out, but you can kind of flip back and forth and see this. Both chapters begin with someone being promoted. Haman gets promoted in chapter 3. Mordecai gets promoted right at the beginning of chapter 8. Both chapters in the middle of the chapter involve the writing of edicts concerning the Jews. Both chapters end with, with remarks about the reaction of the city of Susa to the decree that has been published. But the chapters aren't just parallel. They are like contrast parallels. The, the, I know we don't have this anymore. But, but it's literally almost like a, like a photographic negative for all you older folks who remember taking your film to be developed at the local drugstore. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Young people, you just have to trust me. It used to be that, that we, would, we would take our, our film, yeah, physical stuff, to the store. It would get developed into pictures, but they would always give us the strips of the negatives. And, and they were the exact opposite of the, the picture, right? People were facing in the other direction. The colors were all reversed. But otherwise, it was exactly the same. This is what's going on in chapter 3 and chapter 8. We've got these contrasting parallels, one like a photographic negative of the other. And it begins right here. Because, see, as soon as Haman was promoted back in chapter 3, his pride was offended. And that offended pride led him to a plot to destroy the Jews but notice what happens here. As soon as Mordecai is promoted and Queen, Queen Esther's position as queen is secured, Queen Esther's humility is expressed. And it, it expresses itself by seeking the rescue, not the destruction, the rescue of the Jews. And I can't help but think how much different it might have gone at this moment if she had felt the need at this very moment for vindication. If she had felt the need, the kind of righteous need to convince the king of his mistake. How humbling at this moment to continue to be dependent upon the person who caused this huge headache in the first place. He's not named King Headache for nothing. How is it that, that, that she can avoid doing what I think most of us would want to do and, and call the king out at this moment. How is it that she is able to express such humility? I think it's the same thing that leads any of us to humility. A heart that is more concerned for others than it is for ourselves. A, a, a willingness to, to leave our vindication to God rather than insisting on it in the mouths of others. It's really impossible to display this kind of humility that's so easy to pass over, I think, but is so crucial to the story. It is so, it, it, it's, it's really impossible to display this kind of humility if our eyes are focused on ourselves on our rights, on our reputation, 
on our personal need for vindication. Someone recently asked me how I would define Christian maturity, and my reply was Christ-likeness. Too often I think we think of maturity solely in terms of, of theological knowledge or maybe skill and competency in the Christian life. But think of Christ who humbled himself, humbled himself to death on a cross for our salvation. Boy, if there were anyone who, who had a right, you know, when he was standing in that trial before the Sanhedrin or the second trial before Pilate, if there were anyone who had a right to defend himself, a, a, a right to insist on his vindication, it was Jesus. But he did not do it. He humbled himself, becoming obedient, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to death, even death on a cross. Why did he do that? He did it for our salvation. He did it out of his concern, not for himself, but for us. Christian, can you humble yourself for the good of others? I'll tell you right now, not in your own strength. You can't do it. Pride is just too much in us. But you can with Christ in you. For this is what it means to become like Christ, in part. A humble servant of others. Leaving our own need for vindication aside. Now I wonder, as you think about your own life, maybe in your marriage as a husband or wife, how often do I really want to insist on my vindication? But what I need to do is humble myself for the good of my wife or family. Maybe I think about it at work as an employee or as a boss. I really want to insist on my rights and my vindication. But can I leave that to God and instead humbly give myself for the good of those around me. Christian, I think this is what it looks like to grow in maturity, to be like Christ. Now that's just a little aside because, of course, Esther's main point here is not moral example. But I know if you're anything like me, uh, this is this is something I struggle with. So I didn't want to pass it by too quickly. Well, the king extends his gold scepter there in verse four. He, he spares his life now a second time, her life a second time. And Esther makes her request. Let an edict be written revoking the scheming Haman's plan to destroy the Jews there in verse five. And then she explains her motive. How could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see my relatives' destruction? Verse 6. And it's this point, it's at this point that I think we see Esther's identification with the, with the people of God, the Jews. This is where we see her identification with them absolutely complete. You know, the story begins with her hiding her Jewish identity. Really, at Mordecai's instruction. But, but now it is all out in the open and she is fully identifying with them. 
The king has saved her by executing Haman, by awarding her his estate. But she shows her identification with her fellow Jews by, by, by making it clear that her own safety, her own wealth, her own power is not her concern. None of that could be enjoyed if her own people were destroyed. You know, Esther's concern for her own people is understandable. She describes them as her relatives, and we tend to be concerned for our relatives. But I think this is more than just ethnic solidarity. From the beginning, God's people have been marked by a concern for the welfare of fellow believers, fellow members of the covenant people of God. And while that was built into the Old Testament law, there are actually laws about that. Now, in, in, the, in the New Testament, that concern is written on our hearts as believers. Christians. Believers, people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Regardless of shared ethnicity or culture or nationality or dare I even say politics. Are marked by love for one another. How do I know? Because Jesus said so. This is what he said in John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35. The world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And that love is a love that crosses boundaries. Boundaries that the world does not so easily cross. And in crossing those boundaries, that love for one another makes the gospel plausible. It makes it believable. It offers evidence for the truth that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in us. Why why would believers care for one another in this way? Because in the truest sense of the term, we are family. Through Christ, we have each, as believers, been adopted into God's family and made fellow heirs with Jesus. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We're told that we are now one new ethnicity, like a new humanity. You think about all the ethnicities out there and and you think about the human race. and, And Paul tells us in Ephesians Uh, Chapter two, that actually, you know what? In Christ, God has made a new ethnicity. Actually, a new kind of human race, a new humanity called Christian. That that transcends and relativizes all of those other ethnicities, all of those other cultural loyalties. Peter says the same thing in first Peter, chapter two. This isn't the result of. Of birth, it's the result of the second birth, the new birth by the Spirit of God into the family of God. So, so do you ever wonder, like, am I a Christian? Like, I know I prayed a prayer at one point, and I've maybe been going to church my whole life, but sometimes you wonder, am I, am I really a Christian? Am I really regenerate? Here's one of the true and undeniable evidences of regeneration, a concern for the people of God wherever they are and whoever they are. And one of the things that means is that the fundamental shape of the Christian life is corporate. There there really isn't much room in the Christian life for a me and Jesus attitude. It's a us and Jesus attitude. We are not all about our own personal comfort and prosperity. 
That's what marks people of the world. No, no, my life is bound up with yours. And your life is bound up with mine. Which means my joy is tied to your growth, not just my growth. My joy is tied to your spiritual prosperity, not just my spiritual prosperity. I want to see your well-being in the faith. I long for your perseverance to the end in the Lord. And I trust you long the same for me. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm not here. I'm not part of this church in order to insist on my own rights. But rather to give myself for your good. I'm, I'm far less concerned with using my favorite gifts. And I'm way more concerned about being used any way I need to be used for your spiritual prosperity. And if the day comes that the gift of preaching is not what you need from anymore, from me anymore, great. Just let me do something else. Because the Lord has bound my heart to you and you to me. And and my, my goal for you is your spiritual good. I hope your goal for me and your goal for one another is your spiritual good. Your spiritual flourishing. Is that the way you think about being a part of a local church? Or do you find yourself being here really mainly just because of your needs? I get it. You got needs. I have needs. Everybody has needs. It's been a tough week. We come to church and we're looking for something. In one sense, nothing wrong with that. But if that's where it stops, then how are you actually different from anybody else out there in the world who's looking to have their needs met? No, we, we, we gather not to receive, but to give. Not, not simply to be built up, but to build one another up in the Lord. There's so many ways that we do this. I mentioned one earlier, uh, the Benevolence Fund. We, we give of ourselves, of just material uh, uh, riches that the Lord has given us, so that we can encourage and help others who lack in this body. I think it I think it'll show itself in our in our schedule, right? Our, our schedules get really busy, really full. And when we look at our schedules, often well what is what are we really busy and full with? Well we're really busy and full with our own stuff. Is there space in your schedule for the for the good of others? For actually doing something that, that doesn't maybe benefit you at all? but that is going to benefit another member of this local church. It shows, I think, in our, our willingness, our ability to be joyfully inconvenienced. But we get inconvenienced all the time. The needs of others crash into our lives all the time. And the needs of others are never convenient, right? Are we able to be inconvenienced Joyfully. But then you know, you know that Christ is alive in you. I think perhaps the most important thing, though, that we can draw from Esther's plea here is to recognize that like the Jews, 
Every single one of us stands under an edict of death. And we need to be rescued from that edict. We are all going to die. Every single one of us. The the death rate is still 100%. What we need to understand is that death is not merely natural. Human death is also supernatural. It is the result of God's edict, his pronouncement upon our sin. He made it clear right at the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he has been true to his word all through history. That edict, because it is grounded in the royal character of God, cannot be revoked. It simply cannot be. The judgment of sin is death. Full stop. Here's the thing. We need to be rescued. But were God to just rescue us from that edict of death, were he he just to say, okay, like, I'll lift it for now. How would we be any better off? Our next sin, our next act of rebellion would simply put us back under the edict again because the edict does not change. The penalty for sin is death. Which means we don't need God to rescue us and give us a fresh start to try again. We're just going to fail again. No, we need something much better than a rescue. Which leads us from the plea for rescue to second, the, de- the decree, the decree of reversal. The decree of reversal. Look at verse 7. King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is, the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on the royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence 
clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy and honor in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. All right, well, Esther's made her plea, so what's the king going to say? Has she, has she gone a step too far? Well, as he says, he's already executed Haman and given her Haman's estate. But his point there is not, haven't I done enough already? His point is, I'm just getting started. He can't revoke the edict. But he can empower her to write a new edict in his name. She and Mordecai, in fact, can write whatever pleases them concerning the Jews. And then, so we don't forget, right? We're told again, like Haman's edict, it also cannot be revoked there in verse 8. Two months and ten days after Haman's edict was published, a new decree is penned by Mordecai. Verses 9 to 14, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on here, they correspond almost word for word to the edict that Haman penned in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. But there are some important differences. This edict goes not only to the, the satraps and governors and officials, as Haman's had, it also goes to the Jews in every province. In fact, they are listed first. And now, rather than being the objects of violence, the Jews are authorized to assemble and defend themselves. They've been moved from being victim to actually now being empowered. And what are they empowered to do as they defend themselves? They are empowered to destroy, kill, and annihilate all those armies opposed to them. Those are the exact same words that Haman used that were to be done to the Jews by all the people of the empire. Just like Haman's edict, Mordecai's decree includes the destruction of women and children and the plundering of their estates as spoils of war. And all of this is going to happen on the very same day Haman had decreed. Nine months later, on the 13th day of the, first, of the last month of the year. As one commentator I read this week noted, this is an official authorization of civil war. And yet the Jews have been given months to prepare. But the thing is, it's more than civil war. It's genocide. That, that's what it means when you go after the women and the children. And it's not just any genocide. Throughout this chapter, we're reminded again and again that, that the problem that needs to be solved is this edict that was penned by Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. This isn't just any genocide. This is holy war. A holy war against the enemies of God's people. I don't know that I've ever preached on a biblical passage commanding genocide, and there is more than one, while images of genocide and war crimes fill my phone every morning. 
So I want to be really clear. What's happening right now in Ukraine by the Russian army has no justification in Christian theology, regardless of what the Orthodox Church says. What our own government did and what the Spanish government did before our own government to the indigenous peoples of the Americas has no justification in Christian theology. Regardless of how much we're convinced this is a Christian nation. What happened in Rwanda, in Bosnia, in Chechnya has no justification in Christian theology. Genocide, the deliberate destruction of a people in whole or in part because of their nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or culture is nothing other than diabolical evil. It is what Satan has been about from the beginning. In fact, the Old Testament repeatedly condemns genocide. You can, you can look this up in 2 Kings chapter 15 or, or Amos chapter 1. And we, not only as citizens of a, of a free democracy, but we as Christians should oppose it with every prudential means at our disposal. Which makes preaching this text hard, Right? Why does the Lord command Israel to commit genocide? The the command actually roots back. We've talked about this before in Deuteronomy 25. When the Lord commands Israel to commit genocide against the Amalekites. This this decree recorded with approval is just a continuation of that earlier command. Why, Why does God do that? If the rest of his word is so opposed to it. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was visible. It was defined by Jewish ethnicity and by national borders and boundaries that could be found on a map and located in geography. Why? Well, well, well Israel was to be a blessing to the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations were meant to be able to look at Israel and see what a wise God they served And so to be attracted to that same God. But in the founding of Israel as a nation, the Amalekites sought to destroy the people of God along the way to the promised land before this this city on the hill, this, this light to the nations could even be established. And of course, if that happened, then the blessing to the nations doesn't happen. And so... The Amalekites became, as it were, a symbol, a a, a picture of the enemies of God and his people. And they fell under God's eternal judgment. For the Amalekites, it was as if judgment day was coming early in time and history. As I pointed out before, but if you're just now joining us in Esther, Haman was an Amalekite. Descended through King Agag in 1 Samuel 15. And all who participated in his plan to destroy God's people, regardless of their ethnicity, kind of symbolically become Amalekites as well. 
falling under that same judgment. That's what's going on here. What do we do with it as Christians? Is holy war still something we should be pursuing? Is America now God's nation and we should be thinking about which nations we're going to go and destroy? Or is holy war just totally a thing of the past? Since the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is no longer defined by ethnicity and national boundaries. Well, yeah, kind of yes and no. That kind of holy war, a war that is directed against people because of their ethnicity, is certainly over. Jesus declared it over. He he, he said that if my kingdom were of this world, my, my followers would take up arms and fight, but they don't. Because my kingdom is not of this world. So, so that literal holy war has no place in the Christian experience. But holy war itself is not over. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It is composed of spiritual citizens. And, and so, as Paul says, our, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens we we heard about the weapons that we are given in this holy war read earlier by holly in the service it's it's not people that we are to put to death without mercy as as mordecai's edict commands no it's it's sin it's sin and the, and the deeds of the flesh that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. And then he goes on to define those deeds, or give us some examples anyway of those deeds, in Colossians chapter 3, when he speaks of sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil, desire and greed. You know, in this day and age, with our, our polarizing culture wars and what feels very much like an assault on the church from secular culture, It is really easy to get confused on who the enemy is and what war we are being called to fight. The culture wars are not the church's wars. And the church's weapons are not the weapons of this world, political or otherwise. Because our kingdom is not of this world. Our weapons are the gospel. The gospel message as it's proclaimed. Our weapons are the means of grace that God has given us in the word and in prayer and in faith. Our weapon is the corporate life of the local church itself. By which Paul says, we demolish arguments and strongholds and pride and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10. In the war, and I want to be really clear here, in the war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are engaged in a life or death holy war. We give no quarter to sin. We show no misdirected and misguided pity toward evil. But to people, people who are held captive under Satan's power, We hold out a message 
of mercy to any who will repent and believe and make peace with God through Jesus Christ. Christian, don't mistake who your enemy is. Our message is not just a message of rescue. It is a decree of reversal. Look again there at at verse 14 where this becomes so clear that the couriers rode out in haste on the royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy and honor in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. The decree goes out and is published. And what is the result? The entire storyline of Esther gets turned on its head. Mordecai was clothed in sackcloth at the start of chapter 4, but now he's clothed in royal purple. He had ashes on his head, but now he's got a crown. The Jews were mourning at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, but now they're celebrating in verse 16. It's literally not just a holiday, it is a good day, we're told, in verse 17. The signet ring has passed from Haman's finger to Mordecai's. At the end of chapter 3, the city of Susa was in confusion. It was aghast at the order that Haman had put out. But now the city of Susa itself is rejoicing. So complete is the, reserve, is the reversal at this point that rather than the Jews being afraid for their lives, fear of the Jews has gripped everybody. And now everybody wants to be a Jew. Everybody wants to be associated with them, not against them. What I want you to see is that this is the nature of salvation. It's the point of this passage. God doesn't just revoke our sentence of death. He reverses it. He turns it on its head. But if you've been listening closely, what you need to be asking at this point is, well, how can he do that? Because you've You've said, and the the text has said, that the edict lawfully passed cannot be revoked. And we've seen that this is an edict rooted, not just in the Persian king's whim, but an edict rooted in the character of God. How can that edict of death be overturned? How can he reverse our condition without making a mockery of his just decree? The answer is that there needs to be another decree. There needs to be another edict. And that decree is given to us in Jesus Christ. Because that decree was a decree that holy war itself would be waged. But not on us. Rather on God's own son. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sin and suffered our death. And and we're accustomed to hearing that. We're accustomed to thinking about that. But have you considered that that was the final, the, the ultimate act of holy war by God against sin, visited on his own son? 
the wrath of God poured out without mercy, without pity. By suffering our death, by submitting to God's holy war against sin in his own person, Jesus Christ not only suffered our penalty dying for us, he exhausted it. For death could not hold him. Christ died for us. And when he walked out of the tomb three days later, it was a promise that the day would come that all who are in Christ would enter into resurrection life as well because the war was over. If, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, this is what I most want you to understand. I want you to understand that God is at war against you. He is at war against your sin. The, the, the penalty for your sin cannot be revoked. It is death. But there is another decree. The decree of the gospel itself. The decree of election that all those that are found in Christ, all those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, will find that the war is over because Jesus won it on your behalf. You don't need a second chance. You need a champion. And that champion is Jesus, who went to the cross for you. And what you need to understand, what actually all of us, I think, need to understand better, is that even as he was taking our place, God, in the person of his son, receiving the warfare of God that we deserve, was himself waging war against our greatest enemies, Satan and sin and death itself. Paul says in, Second Corinthians, in Colossians chapter 2 that on the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them. You see, the cross of Christ didn't just accomplish our forgiveness. It secures our vindication. It secures the complete reversal of our condition. We're not just given a reprieve and a second chance. We're given a complete reversal of fortune from guilty to not guilty, from condemned to exalted, from orphans to sons and daughters of the God of the universe. From slaves to sin to a kingdom of priests to God. From no hope in this world to an everlasting hope that cannot disappoint. From ashamed to highly honored. From sinners to saints. God forgives us in salvation. But he does so, so much more. He reverses the curse. He exalts us because we are in Christ now as co-heirs with Christ. The Jews could rejoice, and they do there at the end of chapter 8. The victory was certain, even though it was nine months away, because they saw Mordecai walk out of the palace wearing the golden crown, the signet ring on his finger. Christian, we can rejoice that our victory over sin and evil and injustice is certain because Jesus not only walked out of the tomb, but even now sits at the right hand of the Father 
where he is crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His ascension is the promise that glory awaits all who are found in him. Here, Christian, is the source of our joy. Not your circumstances. Not your success, not your feelings or your experience. The source of your joy in this life is the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ and the promise that that holds out to you. I'm sure some of you have seen these, these YouTube videos of Christians in the Ukraine singing. Oh, my goodness. What could give people joy in such circumstances? This. This, the certainty that victory is secure. You see, Christian, we, as it were, are, are debtors of joy. Right? We, we're borrowing it from a future that has been secured for us by the payment that Christ made in full in the past. How can you live in that joy this week? How can you live in the joy that despite the trials you're facing, your victory is secure? We live in a world that's filled, filled with injustice. History is replete with examples of people who never received vindication in this life. And that very well may be what happens in Europe. Right? The, our news feeds are filled with the language of war crimes and the call for trials, but the sad reality is that without Ukrainian victory and not just Russian defeat, but Putin's fall from power, those trials will never happen. It's enough to make you despair. But we don't despair as believers. The good news of the gospel is that despite what we see happening in this world, Jesus Christ is on the throne. Ultimate victory over evil has been secured. The justice we deserve has been satisfied in him. The justice we long for has been guaranteed by him. Friends, put your faith in Christ and he will do so much more than rescue you. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and maybe consider those, those ways in which you've been looking for your vindication in this life. Looking for your vindication in the mouths of others or, or in a temporary and temporal justice. And consider instead what it would mean to look to Christ. Heavenly Father, we confess that we do need to be rescued. We, we need to be rescued from our sin, from our brokenness. We need to be rescued from our folly, from our foolishness. Lord, how good you are to do more than rescue us.
but, but, but to actually make us sons and daughters, to, to not just justify us, but to, to promise to glorify us. Lord, we pray that as your people, we would live even now in the brokenness of this world with the joy that comes from the certainty that because you walked out of the tomb, Lord Jesus, because you ascended to heaven, glory is secured. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.